Welcome to The Curiosity of HR Episode 33 uh-huh. We are back And um, we've got another Guernsey Greats this episode Yay. I know you've been wanting one of those So uh-huh. um, we've also both got slightly runny noses So hopefully that won't uh, interfere with the recording too much mm-hmm. um, But we've been taking our lateral flow tests And we're all clear there Which is good So should we get straight into it? with the show. Today we're covering another Guernsey great, this time Warren Delary. Have you heard of him? Um, not before you started the research of this. Okay, so uh, lots for you to find out about him then. Now I chose Warren Delary to tie in with the launch of the James Webb Telescope as um, Mr Delary. He was a pioneer in astral photography. And uh, James Naismith actually called him the father of celestial photography. Hmm. And during his lifetime, he'd not only create some of the finest images of the moon but also, and the sun, but also design and develop the apparatus and techniques which would continue to advance the field after his death. That's pretty good. Yeah, and he, he's not actually as well known as some of his contemporaries, but maybe he should be better known than he is. That's why we're covering him, because that's going to get a maybe... Three more people knowing him. Exactly. And he's reached the big time now with us talking about him. Mm-hmm. So he was born 18th of January, 1815, right here in Guernsey. And his dad is Thomas Delory, and he's the founder of the Delory Printing Company, which are still around today, and uh, big multinational printers. And uh, the family actually moved to England before Warren's second birthday. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm stretching the Guernsey great concept a little bit here. But his wife was local. Um, not quite sure how they met, as he may never actually have returned to Guernsey after he left. Um, but he did stay in touch with people locally. In early life, he didn't have all the comfort and riches that he would, or his family would gain in later years. Um, and actually his grandfather had fallen into debt. He, he was a farmer. And his dad also, like Thomas, also had debts at some point of his life. And um, earlier on in his career, he made straw hats. He ate straw hats. No, no, made straw hats. Oh, made straw hats. Yeah, maybe I ate them as well. <laughs> maybe they're that hungry. <laughs> I'm actually not going to cover their early life too much because um, it'll be another episode, I think, on Thomas Delery um, where we cover that and the, the printing business. <laughs> so another Guernsey break for the future. Yay! But just so you know, today the Delery printers, they are the largest commercial printer of money in the world. And one mm. third of all banknotes in circulation were designed by them. That's cool. Yeah, so they, they literally print money. <laughs> I think if you come from that kind of background, you know that it's going to be somebody who's got a real attention to detail. And I think you'll see that through um, Warren Delery's life. Um, so by his teens, it seems that the family must have started to gain some success because age 15, Warren was sent to be educated in Paris, um, but there was a much stronger emphasis on science in the education than there was in England. And Warren later wrote to his father. I perceive now the French education is much superior to the English. Thank you, very well done. And by all accounts, he was a good student. Um, he was mature, good at maths, drawing, intelligent, um, and generally good to get along with. But if he was born in 1815 and travelled to Paris, aged 15, what year would that be? 1830. That's right. Do you know what happened in 1830 in Paris? No, but I probably will later. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, in um, July of that year, the French had one of their many revolutions, and Charles X was deposed. Um, now, this wasn't the big French Revolution, which you uh, usually hear about, but it's still a time of unrest, and here's a rather fantastic painting of it. <laughs> That's cool. Now, due to the unrest, Warren, he returned to England and joined his father in the family firm, where he would become instrumental to its future growth. Now, at heart, I think Warren, he was a real scientist. He loved to experiment and through this developed improvements to the printing surface of paper and formulas for inks, uh, which is really into his chemistry. But his curiosity wasn't just limited to printing. And in 1837, aged just 22, he would publish his first scientific papers on the Daniel Battery. And he would also go on to become a founding member of the Chemical Society in 1841 and would later become its president. Mm, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a newspaper report from the 1880s here, which I'm going to struggle to read at this distance. Let's see if I can zoom in. Progress in chemistry. Some interesting points in the progress of modern chemistry were touched upon in the address by Dr. Delarue at the late anniversary of the British Chemical Society. So rapid, he says, has been the development of chemistry that much of the aspect of chemical thought has altered in the last few years. Old and once familiar bodies have not only changed, um, but new and unfamiliar individuals and families have crowded and greatly extending the domain of chemistry. It's hard to read this, it's an older printout, but that's just to give you an idea of how the field of chemistry was really changing a lot to this time. So exciting time to be part of it. <laughs> and uh, to keep up with that, you obviously had to have a certain level of intellect. Now, do you remember back in episode 21 where we covered pigments? Uh-huh. There was a red pigment made of beetles. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember that. I remember I did some homework for school as well. Oh, you did, didn't you? That was you? the inspiration for it. Yes. Can you remember what it's called? Cochineal? Uh, cochineal. I probably got that wrong. Granny's going to tell me off. <laughs> um, yeah, he wrote some papers about that too and making pigments with it. So he was clearly involved with the scientific scene and he even assisted Michael Faraday um, in his studies of gold film in the 1850s. So have you heard of Michael Faraday? I think so. Well, just put it this way, he's a major player in the world of science. But are you ready to have your mind blown? Okay. Are you sure? Because your curiosity centre of your brain could actually come running out of your ears with this. Well, um, I'm glad that Actually, if my mind's blown, none of us are going to have any brain left because episode one, you lost yours. That's true, you cut it out. And this time you're saying my um, my brains are going to... Mm, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure now. Well, I think I've done quite well with no brain. <laughs> so do you know what this is? No. <laughs> this is called the Delarue Platinum Filament Incandescent Lamp and it's a light bulb. He actually invented the light bulb. (gasps) Well, when you say somebody invents the light bulb, each person would have actually built upon the achievements and understanding and development of those who came before them. But Delarue's light bulb, which had a platinum coil, um, which would survive in very high temperatures for a long time, um, and also had a vacuum tube around it, was what you could call the first working example of what went on to become the modern light bulb. So, uh, pretty cool, eh? Mm-hmm. He gave us light. <laughs> Do you know how uh, filament light bulbs work? No. Oh, oh, is it um the platinum thing inside? Does it like heat up and then glow red or whatever, or glow? Exactly, that's right, yeah. Yay. So why do you think a vacuum would be useful? 
um, so that the flame doesn't go out. Well, like the heat doesn't um, go out. Yeah, in a, yeah, in a way, because if there's no um, other particles around it that can interact with the heated filament, then um, it's going to keep it from, um, yeah, getting damaged, really. Okay. Wow, well, I explained that well. <laughs> in my head, I knew it better, and then the words left me. <laughs> well, in the 1840s, it was actually really difficult to create reliable vacuums, and platinum filament was too expensive to mass produce, but the concept had been proven. This was the first reliable bulb demonstrating what later people, most notably Thomas Epson, would go on to steal, uh, I mean, uh, perfect. <laughs> so he did like to uh, paint and things. <laughs> so do you know what happened in London in 1851? Big event this. Um, no. It's right there in front of you. <laughs> Aha, the Great Expedition. Ex ex exhibition. Yes, it wasn't the expedition through the streets of London. It was the exhibition. <laughs> and this was at the Crystal Palace. And do you know what it was? Um, was it a big football event because it's Crystal Palace? or? No, the club <laughs> came about later. This was actually the first international exhibition on manufactured products and they, with exhibits from all around the world. Hmm. Now, you could say it was a celebration of the Industrial Revolution and Great Britain's powerful position in the world at that time. <laughs> and there were actually over six million visitors in the first year. And the UK population was only about 18 million at the time. So, big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was housed in this specially constructed Crystal Palace, which was a spectacular building, as you can see in that photo. Mm -hmm. It's like a massive greenhouse. <laughs> yeah. But an uh, incredibly ornate one. Uh, sadly, that burnt down in 1936. And the fire was so big that the it said that the glow could be seen from 50 miles away. So there's a map here. Then that little dot in the middle mm -hmm. is its approximate location. Then that red ring I've drawn around it is how far you could see the delay. Whoa. Massive, That's eh? Far. Yeah. And um, there are reports that the iron and the glass got so hot that they started to melt. So that Shh. would be maybe 1,000 to 1,500 degrees centigrade. So some people say, no, that couldn't have happened. It couldn't be that hot. But there are people saying that they saw it dripping or days later they would pick up molten bits of glass Whoa. yeah so it's such a shame mm -hmm. but let's return to happier times Yay. the opening of the great exhibition on the 1st of may 1851 <laughs> now this is a painting by henry Salus. <laughs> i hope i said that correctly depicting the opening and featuring queen victoria and her beloved prince albert you'll notice she's not dressed in black because he's not dead yet <laughs> yep <laughs> Happy times. Yeah. Now, at the front, on the right-hand side, mm -hmm. is Thomas Delery. Mm -hmm. Do you think you can spot him? Not that you know what he looks like, so you can choose on, somebody. On, so, you said at the front, on the right-hand side. Yep. Right, I'm going to have a closer look, so you might not be able to hear me properly. Okay. He is now looking closer with his face right up to the screen. Have you chosen your selected Thomas? <laughs> Um, yep, I think it's that guy there. And in the background somewhere is his son Warren, which we're not going to try and spot. So there's quite a few people in this. Thomas Delery, he purchased this painting just as kind of a, a way to remember the exhibition. And uh, it was donated to the VNA, to the Victorian Albert Museum after his death. Mm. Now, both father and son, they were actually appointed jurors at the event. So they would go around and um, help judge some of the exhibits there um, and they also had their own stand which won a bronze medal 
and they exhibited 289 different items on their stall. Now, this is more than all the items from North America combined. <laughs> That's uh, good. Yeah. And um, one of the things they exhibited was paper. And it was reported that they produced the best writing papers in England. <laughs> well done. Yeah. But I think how important paper is. Actually, yeah, we do use it quite a lot. I wonder if we're using like his special paper in well, schools and stuff. He probably had a part in the development of it at some point, historically. Hmm. But what was their star exhibit? Um, hmm. An envelope? I've just passed Anton an envelope. Pick up that envelope, please, and open it. Okay. And the winner is... It's empty, but it's open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their star exhibit was... An envelope making machine. <laughs> Let's just pop that down over there. Right, <laughs> that's the envelope gun. Yeah, so he, uh, Warren Delarue, he was a bit of an engineer as well, and he had actually developed a machine for folding envelopes. And that's used cool. to, yeah, it used to be done by hand up until that point. Uh, so in 1850, one million letters were being sent a day in the UK, and over 80% of those were sent in envelopes. So yeah. before that, it would have been kind of folded with a wax seal. I, I quite like how um, most of them were folded by hand and then now pe um, at school at my school anyway, uh, it would be like, whoa, you can fold an envelope <laughs> by hand? <gasps> That's true, actually, yeah. Somebody who was skilled in the manufacturing of envelopes could maybe make 3,000 a day by hand Ooh. and then Warren's machine promised to make 2,700 an hour. <laughs> so going to transform envelope in production. Mm-hmm. As that is very important. Yeah. Envelope oh, is yeah. important. I think keeping things safe and clean and all sorts. Uh -huh. that, could have that could have stopped some wars. Potentially. Because yeah. there could have been a letter, a very important letter, that um, was only protected by the envelope. Yeah, there's a whole history of envelopes. <laughs> so as well as his envelope-making machine, um, Ron has a few other inventions to his name, which I managed to unearth in some patent records. Nice. Mm -hmm. Improvements in combining fluids to be burned in lamps. Huh. And what's this one here? Sorry, it's hard to read these old uh, documents. <laughs> Improvements in treating Japan and other vegetable wax. So I had to look at what that meant here. And it's actually a, it's not a true wax, it's actually a fat, but it's a wax-like fat and a byproduct of creating lacquer. Mm -hmm. And it was used in crayons, soaps, lubricants, floor polishes, but it's meant to smell a little bit rancid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One more here, which is uh, improvements in preparing surfaces of paper and cardboard. <laughs> but uh, tangent time. Are you ready? Okay. So there were other exhibitors from Guernsey at the Great Exhibition. So um, what type of stone is quarried in Guernsey? Um, granite. That's correct, yeah. So there was a Thomas Klergas, I think that's correct, and he displayed, Klugach. maybe, yeah, <laughs> and he displayed um, a range of granites from the Bailiwick. Then there was iodine and potash made from local seaweed, <laughs> and it makes me uh, think how hard it is to make. Maybe we should try doing our own. Hmm. She has, remember you did the male science experiment with the iodine? <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Mm -hmm. Then there were dresses, uh, the traditional woolen guernsey. Wax, fruits, and more. But my favourite is... Um, <laughs> this is a good one. 
This is Mummy Talavera wheat. And so this isn't directly from Guernsey, but there was a farmer from Reading named Richard Webb, and he claimed to have received seeds from <gasps> Harry Dobry, president of the Agricultural Society of Guernsey. And um, those seeds had been found in the hand of an Egyptian mummy, and then he had drained them. Richard Webb. James yeah. what, the, the Webb telescope thingy. Oh, yeah. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Maybe you found a link there. Oh, my God. Well, let's return to Warren, shall we? So one of the exhibits was a derogotype of the moon by John Adams Whipple. This was an early photographic process, okay? And now Whipple, he was the director of the Harvard College Observatory. Hmm. And his images were some of the clearest ever taken of the moon. And they seemed to really capture Warren's imagination. He'd already had a keen interest in astronomy after his meetings with James Naismith in the 1840s. You've done it again. You did it the other day. What? He said astronomy. Astronomy? Yeah, what astronomy. Is what is it? Astronomy. Astronomy. Thank you. <laughs> That's why Anton's here to correct me. <laughs> astronomy. <laughs> I can't say it now. Astronom astronomy. Astronomy. Yeah. Astronomy. 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 There we go. We won't cut this bit out. Um, <laughs> it seems he already had a keen interest in astronomy. <laughs> I can't say it now. It was stuck in my head. After meetings with James Naismith in the 1840s, um, of which he said... No one has had so great a claim on the fruit of my labours, for you inoculated me with the love of stargazing. <laughs> That's so romantic. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Wanting to produce even clearer photos than Whipple, Warren decided to apply the new wet collodion process to his photographs and managed to capture the best images of the moon to date. And here's one example Ooh. here. Pretty good, isn't it? That is very good. Hey, you've got to remember... Most people wouldn't have seen the moon more than just gazing up at it at night at this point. So mm -hmm. to see like a big picture like that, amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, taking photos wasn't a quick process back then. And the exposure time could be minutes. So you'd need to keep your subject very still and in focus. And that might not seem like a problem when you're photographing the moon. But if you think of when the sun's setting and how quickly it actually goes down, you're going to have a similar issue with the moon. And so tracking it was a difficult task. And um, Delarue, he said, It was not easy to find a friend always supposed to wait up for hours, night after night, probably without attaining any result. But he was married and he had four boys and a daughter, so maybe he roped those into helping out. <laughs> Sound familiar? No. Well, I'm roping you into this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but being a skilled engineer... He continued to improve the equipment, such as creating a sliding plate holder and a clockwork mechanism for moving the telescope at the correct speed. That's so cool. And with his chemistry knowledge, he also improved the process um, so he could speed up the exposure time. <laughs> he also liked to do um, stereoscopic images of the moon. So I've got some VR goggles for you here. Let me just prepare it. This Oops. is also from Mel Science. It is, yes. If you want to sponsor us. <laughs> oh no, I've seen his picture. Yeah. Okay, so if you look through that. So the stereograph, those are where you've got two pictures at slightly different angles to give a 3D effect. Now you don't quite have the resolution, unfortunately, um, on the one on the phone there. But what was really amazing about these pictures 
was that it allowed people to start to see depth and shape of the moon. And he also did the same with the sun later on. Um, so that you could start to see peaks and ridges and also helped people maybe understand um, like the solar flare and different phenomena on the surface of the sun as well. Kind of what was coming in, what was going out. But yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And I think from the drawings, you can understand why he also got that desire to want to photograph things because of the difference between having a photo and a drawing of something in space. Uh-huh. Um, because he himself said that he would always etch his images as he couldn't find an engraver careful enough for the task. Um, but even then, he had delayed the publications of his pictures as he doubted his own observations. Hmm. Because he really understood the importance of accuracy. Um, and he has an excellent eye for detail. But it said that he would also share his prints um, and his photographs with others so that they would benefit. That's nice. His photos of the moon, uh, people said that they brought to light details of dikes and terraces and furrows and undulations on the lunar surface of which no certain knowledge had previously existed. But unfortunately, he deduced from his images that the moon also had a dense atmosphere and vegetation. <laughs> so, didn't get that one right. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, we'd been lied to. Maybe the moon dun, landings were faked. Dun, dun. Now, one thing I've failed to mention is that Warren was also elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1850 and was twice its Vice President. So, getting an idea of kind of how um, important or prestigious kind of his role was. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised he's not more well-known. Yeah, I know, yeah. And his skills as a photographer, observer, technician, scientist and more were clearly respected and um, made all the more evident when the Royal Society commissioned him to look into remounting uh, a lens created by super scientist Christian Hujan. I've probably said that wrong now. Christian Huygens. So there you have it. Another Dutch name explained. In the 1600s and was presented to the Royal Society by super scientist Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> so this was um, a, a lens that had been made by hand. So Isaac Newton presented it to the Royal Society. So not just uh, an important scientific instrument, but an incredibly historic one as well. Mm-hmm. Etched on it is the name of the first two very esteemed scientists along with Warren's own name. <laughs> in 1854, super scientist, there's a lot of super scientists around, Sir John Herschel, stated, I consider it an object of very considerable importance to secure some observatory, and indeed more than one, in different localities, daily photographic representations of the sun with a view to keep up a consecutive and perfectly faithful record of the history of the spots. So this is recording sunspots. Hmm. So Anton, can you think of anyone who might be able to fulfil this desire? Us or <laughs> Warren Delarue? I wasn't born then, and I don't think you were either, so I think we have to go for Warren here. What about Granny? No, I'm not sure, actually. She's not clever enough. <laughs> at maths. She's good at spelling. <laughs> She can probably hear us because she got super. She got tested by a scientist and was told she has very good hearing. She does. It's scary, actually. <laughs> um, yes, you're correct. It was Warren, and he designed and had built the photoheliograph, and this was the first instrument ever specifically constructed for photographing celestial objects. Hmm. So up until then, it had always been a 
camera kind of stuck to a telescope. But this was actually a purpose-built apparatus. And it was housed in the Q Observatory, but getting good results proved a difficult task. As to getting the staff to use it. So it was actually several years before it was used on a daily basis. And here's a photo of it. Shall I put in the show notes? That's cool. Uh-huh. So it's not that big. But could you imagine designing an instrument to picture the sun? Not really. Is if you have binoculars, what shouldn't you do with them? Look at the sun. Yeah, you shouldn't even really look at the sun anyway with your naked eye. Because it's so bright. So you just think of trying to produce something that can tame that brightness mm. but still allow you to focus and get the most precise pictures of it ever and what happens when you magnify the sun say with a magnifying glass and you find oh a, oh oh it gets very hot and fire uh-huh exactly yeah so a really complicated thing to build i would have thought uh-huh but warren he was a very very talented engineer and his process for polishing mirrors um, of telescopes that he helped design was actually described in Encyclopedia Britannica by Sir John Herschel on the article on telescopes. That's cool. Because there's so many stories of him improving equipment that he had. 18th of July, 1860, River Beloza, northern Spain. It's early afternoon, the sun is high in the sky, but everything is plunged into darkness. Day becomes night. What could be happening, Anton? An eclipse. Correct, yes. Oh, yeah. So this was a solar eclipse, and Warren and a team were in Spain with the photoheliograph to capture this amazing event. Now, it clearly took a lot of planning, and in more ways than is expected, as this newspaper article I found makes clear. <laughs> oh, no, he's only Mr. Warren Delarina, not Dr. Warren Delarina. Oh, yes, he is. The Astronomer Royal will leave for a time his comfortable quarters at Greenwich and take part in the work accompanied by Mr. Warren Delarue, whose skill as a photoheliographer is to be turned to the account of taking photos of the sun's appearance at intervals during the eclipse. The necessity for the exactitude of the observations is so imperative that the use of a lamp or artificial light so prejudicial to the results that Mr. Ory, in an address to the Astronomical Society, urges members to practice writing their notes in the dark and provide beforehand against the failure and discipline which commonly occurs among assistants during the strange and appalling appearance of a total eclipse. Hmm. So, yeah, they had to practice writing in the dark. <laughs> I love that as well, that the, um, the assistants obviously uh, go crazy or something during an eclipse. Now, the photographing of the eclipse, it was a major event, and I'll link to a book in the show notes by Warren Delary that covers the entire expedition and their findings. And it's actually, I think, a really beautiful book. It's very well typeset. Mm. So you can see his skills as a, um, as a typesetter and a printer there. Mm-hmm. So here's a spread from it with a lovely woodcut of the team, which I'll show you later in a moment, and also a list of chemicals that they used. He's, he says that many astronomers... <laughs> astronomers. Astronomers. Many astronomers... <laughs> Um, they wouldn't know all the chemicals that were needed for the photographic process, so he notes them down. Um, so there's nitrates of silver, uh, crystals of nitrates of silver, nitrates of silver, <laughs> oxide of silver. And here's a close-up of the woodcut, so you can see the team. <laughs> there with the um, photoheliograph set up. So it's, it's quite cool. a big team, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
But um, if you look at these ladies on the left, um, they've got minor brows. Yeah, they always seem a bit grumpy as well. Yeah. Oh, you've dragged me along here. I thought we were going to have a lovely time in Spain and we've been set out in this field for hours. <laughs> Perhaps. <clears throat> now, their efforts to photograph the eclipse could have been hindered when a cluster of clouds formed very rapidly and unexpectedly in the immediate neighbourhood of the sun <gasps> and completely put a stop to both optical and photographic observations. The clouds melted away about six minutes after they formed and thenceforward until the end of the eclipse all went without interruption. So, uh, yeah, it could have all ended in failure due to some clouds. Dun, dun, dun! Okay, so here's another spread from the book, and it's a couple of reproductions of his photos, <laughs> which I think have just got a lovely quality about them. Mm. But what can you see around the edge of them? I can see light and fire. Yeah, the fire of the flames. Mm -hmm. They are called the Solar Prominences. And like you said, they look just like flames. And you can also see them on this amazing image recently captured by Andrew McCarthy. That's so cool. Yeah, so this is made. This is a modern picture, and it's made up of... I can't remember if it's 10,000 or 100,000 individual pictures uh, <laughs> using special equipment. So I've actually got a copy of this, so I emailed him. But shall we get even closer to those provinces so you can see how big they are? Okay. <laughs> so what's going on in this picture? Uh, so we've got one of the flames and then we've got the approximate size of the earth near it and it's tiny. Yeah, so it's like a marble. Now, I've been debated for a long time if these prominences were originating from the sun or the moon. Because maybe they were a sign of the atmosphere on the moon. And through the work of Warren Delarue and other observers, this mystery was solved. And I've actually found this really good newspaper article talking about them. It's actually in response to another article, which I couldn't find, which is a shame, which I think is quite funny. So this is from the Trinity Journal, uh, 29th of January, 1870. And I think they got some of the dates wrong in the article itself, though. <laughs> Storms in the sun. There appears in the advertiser some weeks since a paragraph declaring that a column of magnetic light is shooting out from the sun at prestigious speed, that it already reaches halfway to the Earth, and that, in all probability, by another summer, we shall have a celestial and atmospheric phenomena besides which our rudest winter winds will seem like a June morning in paradise. When the big tonga fire touches the Earth, it will likely lap us up and our globe in one mouthful. <laughs> Very many have made inquiries of me concerning this prodigy, and with your leave, I'll try to satisfy their curiosity and perhaps their fears. So they're worried that the flames from the sun are going to come and engulf the earth. <laughs> it has been known for some time that during a total eclipse, red flames were seen to play about the edge of the moon. During the eclipses of 1868 and 1869, so that's where I think the date's wrong, it was definitely settled that they were entirely disconnected from the moon and were vast tongues of fire darting out from the sun's disk. But observations with the spectroscope and also by means of the wonderful photographs of the sun taken by Delarue, during the eclipse of 1869, it's 1860, <laughs> it was discovered that these fire mountains consisted mainly of burning hydrogen gas. <laughs> this was precious information to secure in the midst of the excitement and novelty, and in the brief duration of the total eclipse. It did not, however, satisfy scientific men. For two years, Mr. Lockyer, aided by a grant from Parliament, constructed a superior instrument and had been experimenting and searching in order to detect these flames at other times other than the rare occurrence of a total eclipse. 
On the 29th of October, 1868, he obtained a distinct image of one of the provinces, which he afterwards traced entirely around the sun. Astronomers can therefore now study these flames at any time. The result of the observation now being taken shows that storms rage upon the surface with such violence of which we can form no conception. Hurricanes sweep over its surface with terrific violence. Vast cyclones wrap fires into whirlpools, at the bottom of which the earth could lie like a boulder in a volcano. Huge flames dart out to enormous distances and fly over the sun with a speed greater than the earth itself through space. At one time, a cone of fire shot out 80,000 miles and died away in all of 10 minutes. Besides such awful convulsions, the mimic display of a terrestrial volcano or earthquake sinks into insignificance. There is nothing in this phenomena to alarm us. They have in all probability happened constantly for ages past. That we now have a means to investigate their nature and measure their height and velocity furnishes no cause for anxiety. Rumours of these discoveries have crept into the papers and exaggerated by repeated copying and sensational editions and have given rise to this mysterious and uncalled for predictions. So you see there the, um, first of all, the excitement around these discoveries and the scientific um, achievements that are going on at the time, but also how they get sensationalised in the press. Uh-huh. Do you think things have changed since then? Mm. They haven't really, have they? That's why it's so important to um, try and have a, a good knowledge and listen to experts on these subjects. So with each new thing we learn, it comes new ideas, either confirming or debunking. Um, and you need to understand these to stop rumours and misinformation spreading. Because it's very easy to take half an idea, something misunderstood, and turn it into something bigger and new and scary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's simply incorrect. I think this is a sentiment that would have been shared by Warren himself. So here's a quote from him. We want science really cared for in England by the state. We want all state questions relating to science properly considered by a body capable of dealing with them. There's great difficulty, in fact, under existing circumstances with the state dealing at all with science or with scientific men. There's no department of the government, as far as I know, able to fully appreciate the advantages that science confers on the state. So he's saying there that at governmental level, um, there isn't a good enough understanding of the importance of science. Not all of Warren's experiments were so successful. Um, in 1874, he hoped to capture the transit of Venus using his photoheliograph. And whilst he did get images like this one here, which shows Venus, the little dot, because mm-hmm. he was using a negative technique now, mm-hmm. they weren't, when enlarged, accurate enough to get reliable um, observations from. But he was really trying to push the technology, but it wasn't quite there in all cases. By the 1870s, his eyesight was beginning to fail and he took a less active role in making observations, but he still continued to fight for funding for the, and support for the sciences. He was also a very wealthy man himself, thanks to the success of the printing business, where he was now chairman. And he donated his telescope to Oxford University, where his friend Charles Pritchard was professor. And as you know, previously, he had struggled for assistance, hadn't he, Mm -hmm. Um, to stay up all night. So he actually also paid for four years' salary for assistance to help run the telescopes (laughs) at Oxford. That's cool. Yeah. And as uh, a sign of respect um, that he had with his peers, and to make best use of these um, things he had donated, there's a new dome built at Oxford University, and it's named after him. 
So the right-hand dame there, that's the Delarue dame. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. And his support continued. And in 1887, he provided two 38-centimetre mirrors and around £600, um, which is a lot of money in those days, to buy further equipment. Yeah. And I've got another clipping here. Uh, this is just talking about donations to science generally. And it mentions Delarue again. It goes, Delarue, for instance, provided an electric battery at the cost of many thousands. So that's a lot of money. And uh -huh. he actually did some early experiments with batteries and electricity as well made. Um, I think, was it, I can't remember the process now, but he, he invented a type of battery during his life as well. But on the 19th of April, 1889, Warren Delarue died of pneumonia, aged 74. <laughs> now his estate, his death was worth £300,000. And in today's money, that's nearly £40 million. So as well as all of his scientific achievements, he was an incredibly successful businessman. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a lot of money. But it wasn't just his money he left behind. He also left lots of books. I so. like the names of older books as well. This one's a rough list, uh, choice and valuable books. A rough choice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> a rough list of choice and valuable books, including the scientific library of the late Warren Delery. Yeah, so this is actually a catalogue of his books when they're going up for sale. There's all sorts of categories of books here, which he had. Um, America, Antiquity, uh, Australasia, Egypt, um, Foxes, Martyrs, Ireland, Mathematics, Microscopes, Photography, Scotland, Shakespeare, and all sorts. Zoological Society. Uh-huh. Yeah, those are the minutes from them. Um, but I like this at the bottom. It goes, The printing and posting of my rough list is a considerable expense to me. I therefore appeal to recipients to favour me occasionally with an order. Otherwise, the sending of these catalogues must be suspended. <laughs> and then I actually went through the list. I got a little bit distracted here. And I pulled out a few that I like. So this is in the section on America, and it's Cortez. The pleasant history of the conquest of West India, now called New Spain. Most delectable to read. So that's the... Uh, delectable read on how um, Europeans went and slaughtered the Aztecs <laughs> and the Incans and everyone. Nice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> then on each, or on many of the books, there's also a little um, bit more description. So that one was set in black letter. So you, you know that style of type uh -huh. or text. Um, and it was Old Green Morocco. So I wonder what Morocco meant. And that was actually the type of leather used. And this would be goat's leather. And it was really, really thick. And um, it has to be pounded thin. <laughs> so I've got another one here. This is Crania Americana. Or a comparative view of the skulls of various Aboriginal nations of North and South America. <laughs> now I've got a collection of nearly 100 letters from eminent scientific men to Warren Delery. <laughs> There's another one here which is called The Felony of New South Wales. Being a faithful picture of the real romance of life in Botany Bay. With anecdotes of Botany Bay society. Going to China now, we've got Chinese mythology or Book of Demigods by Chinese artists, a collection of 100 drawings splendidly executed in colours, including pictures of the most important gods of the Chinese mythology. Then there's a description added by um, the seller of the books. Rarely does one meet with such highly artistic work from the hands of native artists. Bit of inherent racism there. Okay, this is a good one. So this was worth £96, or was being sold for £96, which today would be over £12,000. And this is Virgilus, 
and this is from 1501 and it was by a printer called Aldus Mantunius um, and it was typeset by Francesco Griffo, here's the typecutter and it's the first ever book to be um, set in what's called italic type, so slanted type so up until then it had been um, Roman or black letter have been used for printing mm-hmm. and where this book was so important these books they were the forerunner to today's paperbacks so they were much smaller books because italic text actually helped save space and uh, they were aimed more at casual readers. So that's a very historically important book, that one. And mm-hmm. You wonder if he had it just being a printer. Um, that he just collected these things. I like this one. So he's got a copy of Encyclopedia Britannica. And the comment here, it's a uh, review from the Glasgow News. The Encyclopedia Britannica is one of the cheapest books in existence. This volume, for example, contains close to 900 pages crowned with information which could not be collected in any other way for ten times the money. The Invasion of England, a book about Napoleon Bonaparte. But I like the comment here. The desire of a French invasion of England is not extinct. (laughs) And one last one, because this is being sold here for £750, which would be nearly £100,000 today. (laughs) And it was a collection of images from Turner, you know, the artist. Uh... So... There's a print here, and you just look at the quality of the light in that. That's cool. Beautiful, isn't it? Uh-huh. But more important than his books and his money is the legacy and feeling that he left with people during his life. As I've said, he held many important roles in key and prestigious institutions during his life, and he also worked with some of the greatest scientists of the day. His involvement in chemistry, electricity, physics, printing, and of course, astronomy. 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 Yes. Astronomy. No, you, you said it the second time. Astronomy. 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 <gasps> and of course, astronomy. This whole podcast was um, curious daddy's road to learning words. It is. I struggle. <laughs> um, so I've got part of an obituary here. Death of a scientist. The death is announced of Mr. Warren Delary, MA, DCL, PhD, FRS, at the age of 84 years. I'm sure he was 74 earlier. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, there are funny dates in another bit as well. Hmm. Maybe he discovered more than just photographing space. He learned how to twist space-time. Uh-huh. Mr. Delarue, who was a native of the island of Guernsey, had been a prominent figure in the scientific world. He applied his great scientific knowledge to purposes of practical utility and invented a great number of new processes and machines. Among the former are the processes for utilising earth oils in the latter machinery for printing surface colouring paper, pasting cards and folding envelopes. He also distinguished himself by the eminent success with which he applied photography to record the celestial phenomena. Among the offices he occupied were those of the President of the Chemical Society, the President of the London Institution and the Secretary of the Royal Institution. If the heart fails and tears gather in thinking of the band of noble workers fast being broken up by death, Greatly intensified is the feeling and thinking or speaking of an individual death, especially when the worker called to die was one so kindly, so courteous, so full of gracious and graceful ways, as was Mr. Delarue. Fortunate in many things in life, he is fortunate in death too. To the last, almost taking pleasure in his favourite science, watching with keen interest and sympathy the excellent and enthusiastic work of Professor Pritchard and directing the construction of new instruments to meet the most recent astronomical requirements. He may be said 
to have died working for astronomy and still fully in touch with those developments of which he had laboured so well to build up. Yes, he was meant to be um, a kind and helpful man as well in life. Because I didn't really cover what he did to try and make sure that there was funding for the sciences and the Royal Institute. The best biography, it has well be said, cannot be written. It is always difficult to present the man who lives and moves behind a man's doings. Two aspects of Mr Delarue, however, I cannot conclude without touching on. First, his wise and liberal assistance to science by the presence and sympathy, as well as by gifts. The Royal Institution in particular, which he honoured and served by honorary secretaryship, for a time received liberal donation and verbal apparatus from him. His gifts to the University of Oxford have already been mentioned. Next is service to science by the work of councils and committees. Committee work is often tedious and difficult and rarely receives the thanks it deserves. Few men ever more effectively and agreeably discharge committee duties than Mr Zellery. His insight, his judgment, his ready tact and his conciliatoriness combined to make him a power in council and committee. Conciliatoriness he regarded as the most valuable quality. I am the man with the oil can, I have heard him say, and the description was as true as it was graphic. Now if you were to take a telescope and look up at the northeastern edge of the moon, you might just be able to spot a small crater, the Delarue Crater. Well, I think that is a wrap for Delarue. Yeah, so what do you think? Uh, he he seems very cool. Um, pressing the Guernsey great, but still, <laughs> uh, still great. <laughs> yeah. So um, with the launch, well, hopefully successful launch, as we're recording this beforehand of the James Webb Telescope soon, which will um, should bring us amazing new images of space. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the pioneers who started it all off was uh, Warren Delery. Mm. He had a real love there. And seems like a, a very intelligent man who wanted to understand so many different things. Um, and bring them all together. The combination of his ability as an engineer and um, his attention to detail. And it seems that a, a real genuine kindness and passion there as well. <laughs> On the That's Not Canon Network, of which we are a member, um, now that's interesting. They are releasing an episode on the James Webb Telescope, so make sure you listen out for that. Um, and I'm going to plug another show here. This is the Lunatics Radio Hour. Let's play the trailer. Hi, I'm Abby, and this is Alan. Hello. We're from the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast, where we explore the history of horror and modern horror storytelling. We do deep dives into legends like ghost trains or the Headless Horseman or Wendigos. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Including cell phones and computers. We're back. We are back. Um, so where can you find us on social media, Anton? Um, Twitter, Instagram, uh-huh. Facebook. Yeah, but how do you find us on these networks? At Curie Child Pod. That's correct. Um, you can also visit our website, thecuriousityofachild.com. And we also have merchandise. We do. <laughs> um, Order now before Christmas. <laughs> uh-huh. Arrive after Christmas. At shop.thecuriousofachild.com. That's correct, yes. And I believe you might have a YouTube channel. Is that correct? Uh-huh. I think I've got 
from recording this, I think got 66 subscribers now. That is incredible. Which is really good. Yeah. Um, which is the curiosity of gaming on YouTube. That's correct. Yeah. So you go and have a look at Anton's Minecraft builds because please. <laughs> he combines not only fabulous but simple builds for people to do. I mean that in a good way. But he also um, includes history of the vehicles there. So uh, you get real value for money. Mm -hmm. Really fun to do as well. Yes, and uh, we should be doing another one before Christmas, hopefully. <laughs> uh, as, uh, as I wrote Pantan into um, doing this podcast, he wrote me into being his video editor. I think that, I think that we should um, do a tank build um, or something. Mm -hmm. But we make it slightly Christmassy, or we do like a Christmas special in, uh, on my channel somehow. Yeah. The giant turkey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yes, um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, I felt a little bit rusty, so uh, fingers crossed this comes out okay, and it's not too echoey. Uh-huh. And we've both had slightly runny noses, so you might have been hearing some louder breathing or some sniffing or something. Yeah, but don't be put off by that. <laughs> you're, you're safe with your headphones. So thank you very much, and we will see you again soon. See ya! Bye! Astronomy. Astronomy.